Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 134. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Mystery. Crime. And thrillers. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Our guest this week is Caroline England, prolific author. And, uh, and all-round lovely lady. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> Used to be a divorce lawyer, no less. I know. And uh, I think that plays through into her dark domestic noir psychological fiction. Yes, indeed, yes. Um, absolutely. So we look forward to speaking to Caroline a little bit later in the show. Uh, news this week, it's a bit more um, substantial than it's been um, for the last couple of weeks, I think. Yes, and sort of big news, you know, like proper businessy news. Yes, proper businessy news. Um, <laughs> I should put on my proper businessy news voice, uh, which is a story we've done to death, really, while it was still being debated in the courts and uh, in the United States, was this potential takeover of Simon & Schuster by Penguin Random House. But eventually the Department of Justice stepped in and blocked it legally. They did. They said, no, you're not having them. And so now we know that pup, there is a new owner, uh, or will be a, an owner very soon for Simon & Schuster, because Paramount Global, who own the, uh, the the imprint and the company, are selling it to private equity giant uh, for $1.6 billion. So uh, finally it's going to be sold. It's going to be uh, sold to KKR. And they say, KKR, I don't know much about them, um, that they're going to allow Simon & Schuster to be run independently. And this is, I don't know if this is good news for the 1,600 people that are employed by Simon & Schuster worldwide. They probably won't notice a difference, will they? Well, I think they will, because what tends to happen when private equity takes over is they strip out as many jobs as they can Do to they? increase profits. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, well, KKR, which counts digital books platform Overdrive amongst its earlier investments, said it saw an opportunity to expand the company's distribution across mediums and markets. <laughs> it said it would also create a plan to provide employees shares of the firm to, uh, uh, to help create an ownership culture. That's interesting. And uh, Simon & Schuster is the fourth largest of the US uh, Big Five which include HarperCollins, mm -hmm. Hachette Book Group, USA, Penguin Random House, and Macmillan. Yes, we know about the big five. <laughs> Indeed. So um, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, don't forget this, when it was uh, in, in the courts, Stephen King stepped in and was in, you know, was uh, cross-examined 
during that court case. And what, bit, did, what did he say? Well, he was anti the merger with, with yeah. Penguin Random House. Well, yeah, so this is, I mean, I suppose you could say it's a good thing and it sounds like they've got um, sort of business-orientated plans for the company, which yes. is no bad thing. Well, it's interesting because the LA Times have a thought piece on this. Oh, okay. And uh, its uh, headline is this, Wall Street predators destroyed Toys R Us. Now they're coming for Simon <laughs> & Schuster. Oh, yeah, Toys R Us. What, I mean, it doesn't exist anymore, does it? Yeah, no, it doesn't. Exactly. For a glimpse of their future and tips <laughs> on how to fight back, this is for the, for the, uh, for the staff, Simon & Schuster authors and employees might want to chat with the former workers of Toys R Us. <laughs> there are 33,000 of them, and their company was driven into bankruptcy five years ago by a clutch of Wall Street firms led by KKR. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you know, it's, um, it's interesting. So let's, I'm just going to scroll down a little. Um, but, yeah, let, let's not say it's great news yet. Uh, the Simon & Schuster transaction will leave the publisher $1 billion in hock, ratcheting up the pressure to repay the debt and turn a profit. Right. Those former Toys R Us employees can attest to how that goes. When a group led by KKR bought Toys R Us for $6.6 billion in 2005, it used $5 billion in debt. Okay, so this is a debt-leveraged takeover. Um, for fans of football, this is very similar to what the Glazers did when they took over Man United over 20 years ago, um, when they basically loaded the debt onto the company, onto, mm. onto Manchester United, and they've never paid it off. It's still... In, in the region of $650 million well, of debt. What happens in that situation? Surely you can't exist with a debt. Well, no, you can't. I mean, this is what's going to happen. Well, this is what they're suggesting here in the LA Times. The new owners eliminated positions and offloaded responsibilities onto other employees while pressuring workers to sign up customers for high-margin sweeteners like credit cards and payment protection plans. KKR and its partners sold off Toys R Us real estate, pocketed the money and forced the retailer to lease back its own buildings. Along the way, KKR and the other firms paid themselves $250 million in management fees and big bonuses. Oh, dear. Now this sounds <laughs> suddenly gone really doom and gloom. Right. Healthcare has also proved a juicy target, according to the LA Times. KKR bankrupted Envision Healthcare, a staffing service for emergency rooms with a heavy debt load. Okay, right. So, it's interesting. I mean, you know, just... Looking at the underlying story here, yeah, it is not good news. No, it's it. not, is it? I mean, cause, yeah, because I used to love going to Toys R Us with the boys. Yeah, well, um, yeah, very interesting. I mean, given how difficult it is to, with margins as they are at the moment in, in publishing, to generate that profit, you wonder where they're going to get that from. And clearly, jobs will be under threat now. Sixteen hundred jobs globally. Well, we'll see. Um, we'll see, indeed. Um, but that's that's uh, that's an interesting development um, in the United States and for the Big Four in general, Big Five rather. Okay, uh, more positive news we have here, which is Bookshop.org has announced it has generated three million pounds in profit since its launch for the five hundred and seventy independent bookshops in the UK using the platform, and is setting a goal to increase online sales for indies five times by twenty twenty eight. Nicole Vanderbilt, the managing director of Bookshop.org UK, told the bookseller, our goal is to help indie bookshops thrive in the age of e-commerce. In order to do this, we need to develop and expand 
our own platform, help booksellers translate their in-shop strengths to online sales and build more partnerships and links. The company is working to make daily improvements to its website in order to make purchases easier for customers and increase sales, Vanderbilt added. It's difficult for most indies to invest this kind of resource into their own e-commerce capabilities. Building a common platform from which over 570 of them are benefiting means these investments are possible. And technology development will be an important part of the platform as it branches into audio and ebooks. Oh, now there's a development that's quite interesting. Yes. Um, well, I wonder what does that mean? I'm going to keep reading it's on. A but... rival to Amazon, sounds like, possibly. Well, yes, but then again, if you're in KDP Select no, you, and Kindle no, Unlimited, wouldn't no, wouldn't it's be not a rival. Thing, no. no, exactly. So it's a lockout. Um, it's interesting. I mean that uh, a survey from the Booksellers Association found that for independent bookshops in the UK, online sales make up 7% of their overall revenue, which is tiny, really. Yeah. Um, and over half of those surveyed reported that they either somewhat or very dissatisfied with their online business, expressing aspiration to grow their online sales by over 20% in the next year alone. Um, yeah, so bookshop.org hoping to fill that gap. But, um, you know, you think about it, though. £3 million profit for 570 shops doesn't go a long way, really. I haven't done the math. I was going to say, I don't know. And especially if, say, some of them are particularly, you know, doing well. Yeah, so there'll be a lion's share it, going to some... It, exactly. It's not going to be even, is it? So No. Okay. Well, look, I mean, it's imp- you know important that they're growing and, and they're looking forward for new out- opportunities. Yeah. Well, we'll watch this space. Okay. Well, look, another negative story. Sorry about this. Yeah. Um, so... Well, it's a difficult story for, for, for publishers across the UK because of, well, again, an American firm moving into the market. Exactly and... that, yeah. And distribution, it just seems... Um, the publishing industry cannot sort out distribution without problems at any time. There's always something, isn't there? Mm. So this is um, Marston Book Services. Um, so they, the publishers who use Marston Book Services are having problems with late payments, no payments, uh, lack of information coming to them from um, Marston Book Services. And it's because, they're saying it's because... Um, in October 2021, US-based company IPG, which is not the Independent Publishers Publishing Guild, it's the Independent Publishers Group, um, was play. Uh, sorry, they took it over. Didn't <laughs> they, they took it over. Yes, um, and it wasn't just Marston; there's a number of other companies, and they're going through the process of um, fine-tuning their financial systems. And so they're saying, you know, well, we're just we're making it all better. But at the moment, it's not better. At the moment, it's chaos. Can I have a quick look at the article in question? Because, you know, we're talking about some companies are saying they're not being paid for five months. Yeah, I know. And that would be a problem for us. Yeah. Well, we have been in that situation, haven't we, with a, um, a company that we've sold quite a lot of books to. That we, well, It was more than five months. But it is a problem because you rely on that cash flow. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, here is the... There's been long-term disruption, it says. In October 2021, US-based company, IPG, that we mentioned, acquired the UK's United Independent Distributors, UID, which included Marston, Eurospan and Orca. 
Turpin distribution was placed into administration as part of the major reorganisation of UID a year later, which saw Marston, Eurospan and Orca exist as separate entities, but managed by the same executive team. Um, they were hoping to improve things, but there's been a big backlog at Marston Book Pub. I mean, how big is that as a company, Marston, and from your experience in the publishing um, industry? Do you know what? I, I remember hearing about Marston Book Services because I think OUP did use them for some things, but at the time, everything was fine. It all worked. So um, how big are they? I don't know. We got a book from Marston Book Services, didn't we? That It was that legal, that enormous legal book. Yeah, so that was um, something from the other IPG that yeah. we ordered, uh, which was a book of contracts for, you know, uh, publishing contracts. Yes, yeah, it was massive. It's, um, it's good for keeping the door open. It really is. <laughs> well, um, the uh, responding to all this, Joe Matthews, CEO of IPG, indicated that the latest disruption at Marston was a result of the ex- execution of the business strategic plan. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. He said, our global CFO has made several accounting changes to bring modern best practices to Marston. One is an upgrade to the order processing system, moving it to post-bill, such that invoices are raised against what is actually shipped. Another is ending the practice of ageing credits, which makes sense because customers apply their credits when they make a payment. We also now add the cost of the new tariff when shipped to Ireland. Okay, well, yeah, fair enough. Brexit won't have helped things. No. Anyway, so look... to answer for Brexit. Yeah, I mean, some headwinds there in the the industry, as ever. But uh, let's get to something more positive, shall we? What, the, the interview? Yes, <laughs> yes, it is, it's a lovely interview. This is an interview with Caroline England, who I say used to be a divorce lawyer, but uh, is now a full-time author. Yes, and she does very well. She does, fantastic. Let's speak to Caroline England. What a pleasure it is to be joined by Caroline England. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on the Hopcast. I'm very excited. Right, indeed, on the Hopcast. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, we've been meaning to speak to you for ages. We see you at festivals quite regularly. We've we've never really met, though. Yeah, because even at Harrogate this year, I saw you in passing. And I was like, oh, that's Caroline. And then there's just so oh, many well, people. You know, and... I was going to ask you that because the year, was it the year before we had a long chat? I but think this so. Time, this time, everybody was there. And I've seen from Facebook people going. And I said, well, I didn't see you. But I was doing an event most of Saturday, this Griller Killer event. So oh, yeah. I have missed out on the tent so much, you know, where maybe during the days when you can get the opportunity to sit down and chat with people. Because obviously in the evening, it's so chocker, isn't it? That mm. it's sort of, it's hard. And, you know, anyway, next time. It is, it is definitely one of those where, yeah, it you know, it is an overwhelming place yeah, to be, yeah. really, isn't it? And, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's very, very easy to miss people. But uh, lovely to speak to you. And it's been an enormous week for you because not only has your latest book come out, which was Thursday, but you also have a new agent. Yeah, I know. It's all very exciting. Yeah. So um, Lisa Moylet, and she, she's brilliant. I, I just love her. She's, you know, we've had a few Zooms and um, she's just wonderful so far <laughs> why why I mean were you agented before or is this you know a, a yeah, new development I was, for you? yeah I was agented when I first was first published um when my first debut came out uh, beneath the skin I had an agent then and I in fact 
continued to have that same agent, Kate Johnson, who's lovely. She's in fact American. She's based in Bristol, but it's an American agency. Mm. And I had her um, basically for all my Caroline England books so far. Um, but um, we sort of parted ways a while back because she went into a more literary um, genre, I suppose, rather than the crime fiction. And uh, but um, I didn't actually need an agent because the contracts had already been sorted, if you like. Mm. So my Caroline England books were still running because, you know, traditional publishing is quite slow, isn't it? With one a oh, year. Yeah. So I didn't need one until sort of more recently. And I'm now at the stage where, um, yeah, I'm you know, at the end of my Caroline England contract. So it's what next? So hopefully Lisa can guide me and help me in that way. Absolutely. That's brilliant. Yeah. No. So yeah. the stranger inside me is the latest book. Um, do you stranger still get the beside me? Sorry, I'm sorry. Beside me. Do you have a stranger inside you? Oh, I certainly do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all coming out now. <laughs> it is. It is. I do apologise, but um, you, you know, do you still get the nerves when a new book comes out? Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's um, you'll know. It's um. A roller coaster ride, and I know it's a bit of a cliche, and we all say that, don't we? The roller coaster ride, but it is. And I think um, the highs of being published are just amazing, and, and it is a great honor. And I'm so lucky because there are so many authors out there who would, you know, just die to be published, and it's wonderful. But then um, there are the sort of lows when things go wrong, or you know, the review, and it's out there, isn't it? Your baby's out there, and. Um, mm. It's there for people to criticise if they want. They might love it. They might hate it. And um, and I think being an author, you're sort of on your own. Um, it's it is a game of doubles, of course, because you, you know the publishers, the editors, and everything. It's all a collaboration. But on the cover, it's a it's a game of singles, isn't it? You Absolutely, know, and you are yeah. the one. Yeah. So you're it's the focus. Your, sorry, you're the focus. Yes. Yes. Definitely. And um, and obviously it's, it's the author's um, you know basic idea, even though it is a collaboration as well. So um, so it feels very personal when people don't. You want everyone to like it, but of course not everyone can. We've all got views and opinions, and uh, so it is a bit scary. And of course the other thing is you want it to sell. You want to go into your author Amazon account and see it going up in the stats. Um, which must be, you know, it must be nice. One day, one day. <laughs> it happened with Beneath the Skin. Um, sorry, no, My Husband's Lies, rather, um, where it did go up and up and up and up and just out of nowhere. It was one of those sort of generic things that just happened, but it hasn't happened since. <laughs> you never how, know. how difficult is that to, to deal with? Because if you've had a book which sort of was the zeitgeist and, you know, the timing was right and, and the, the fair wind behind it, and you get to the top 10, um, it, it can't be easy. You know, you think, oh, cracked it, and then it doesn't happen. Is that difficult to deal with? No, it's, well, not, not difficult so much is because I don't know where that came out of in the first place, if you like, because um, I was with HarperCollins, and uh, that was my second book, and they'd already decided they didn't want to take the option. And so that was one of these lows, very, you know, a low, and they'd already said, oh, no, 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 you know, I mean, you know, maybe you haven't really um, got the commercial, you know, you don't really understand that it's very commercial. And um, so I was in this depth of despair um, when it came out, because I was told that six days after my husband's lies came out. 
and um, and I just thought that set I was devastated and then it just started going up and up and up in the charts but in fact the book is dedicated to my sister who sadly died and I feel as though she was up in heaven or wherever you go pressing the <laughs> oh, I love button, that idea button. or maybe she was just at- sort of saying giving people messages saying you're gonna love this one go That's on it, yeah buy yeah. it <laughs> so because it came from nowhere and obviously this was only on kindle it wasn't the paperback that it did really well and, and ended up at I think it ended up at number four in the overall kindle chart in the UK so that was just amazing and um yeah so so uh, yes absolutely I'd love to replicate it but I've, it was so weird that uh, you know well, did the publishers have an explanation for that because they must have noticed as well the, sorry the publishers yeah did they have an explanation for why it well I think partly it was because it was on a 99p at the time and it was just on a temporary 99p and I think they thought look how this is moving will and they were going to put it back up again and they they obviously thought no 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 keep it so they just kept it at the 99p and I think that obviously must have helped um yeah I don't know because that's when that's when I moved on to another publisher so you know I don't really know what happened I should go back and ask (laughs) you want the magic formula yeah, I was going to say, and if, if they tell you, let us know. We need you. <laughs> yeah. I shall sell it. I'll have like a little a potion. Yeah, Publishing potion. A, that'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. It really would. So who are you with now? Is it HQ? Um, no, no. It's uh, Piatkus uh, with Little Brown. They're part oh, of oh, it. Yeah. Brown. And uh, yeah, so I've had, I have two with HarperCollins. It was Avon. And then I've had four with Piatkus. Right. I can't even say it. It's a funny word, isn't it? I was going to say, I hope I don't have to say it back to you. <laughs> That's it. Piatkus. Yeah. yeah. So, and, yeah. And what's that? I mean, you know, it, it, we speak to traditionally published authors and indie authors and, and in between and, and you know, man, maintaining those relationships with those big companies can be quite difficult because quite often, you know, the team that you've worked with with one book will be moved on, you know, their, their careers progress and they go into something else. Has that happened to you? Have you sort of had to recreate relationships over the series of books well in fairness not until very recently because um Anna Boatman um she sort of was the one who um had faith in Betray Her which was the first book and um I carried on with her and she was my editor up until uh, very recently when she went off on um, maternity leave so it's only quite recent and the book had already been like the structural edit had been done and everything so I was very lucky to have that consistency um with with Anna so yeah uh, I was looking that way and now it's a lovely person called Kate Byrne who's sort of taken over but she's in the more latter she's just sort of dealing with I suppose the publishing aspect oh she's in the cover as well so mm. the cover was left with the new Kate so yeah I know because as you say lots of authors get chopped and changed and um and there's a big turnover isn't there in, in yeah the whole, yeah because people, well, they do, you, they, they, you move, guys, they move companies quite a lot. Sorry, what was that? As people, editors, especially sort of editors and assistant editors, they do churn a lot. They move around a lot because that's just the nature of the business, I think. Yes, yes, it is. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? And of course, people pop up somewhere else, don't they? And it's it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think I, I gather that... Um, I don't think the pay is mega high, is it? You know, I mean, I complain from an author point of view, but from, you know, being an editor and in publishing, it it's, doesn't seem brilliantly paid. So I suppose people, in fairness, are looking for a bit more money, aren't they? 
yeah no no it's it's sort of quite well known for being you do it for love because you love reading you love books you love publishing you're not doing it for (laughs) your mansion yeah Yeah. that's exactly what I say as well from from um, a writing point of view because so many um your average writer they 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 said it was around 11,000 didn't they and now it's Mm. come down and they say it's about 7,000 7,000 that's right yeah yeah so, and I think the public just don't realise that, how poorly, you know, writers are paid and obviously the rest of the millions in the publishing industry, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it is it is difficult. And, it, you know, it, it, even if you are being ch- paid a generous royalty, it doesn't necessarily, it's going to be, you know, riches because, uh, you know, you've still got to shift the units and there's a lot of costs involved. So I think I think we're in, I think what we've discussed on the Hobcast is that the, the industry really is a, a, a period of flux now. At yes. the moment, and I think I think un, you know unprecedented pressures on the on the you know because let's be honest and and although I, I moaned last week that the independent publishers guild was saying macro pressures aren't really playing into publishing that's nonsense it you know the fact is that it's um, for some people for many people at the moment buying a book is a, is very much on the luxury item list now yeah. You know, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? I, I find it, it, it difficult because they have got it's now a tenner, isn't it, for a, for a paperback, which yeah. is quite a lot, isn't it? Mm. But on the other hand, we've still got the 99p and sometimes less than 99p Kindle things. And it seems to be the two extremes, doesn't it? And, um, you know, and it's... But I, I feel as though we're going to get more appreciated in this waiting for it. You know, people value, maybe value books more, maybe um but you know yeah i think so i think that price shift is is inevitable and and necessary in a a way because in the uk i think the price of books is way lower than it is anywhere else in the world really Um, yeah very much so if you go to australasia you'll pick up a book and you'll look at 30 dollars 40 dollars for a paperback and you know so it's a very very different thing and it's not dissimilar in the united states it's a lot more expensive than than people anticipate so that is where the ebook pricing has come in Mm. um you know at that low level because of the production costs but at the same time it it costs a lot of money now to get anybody to pick your ebook up so you know in terms of marketing yes but i mean obviously the 99p thing does work because we've tried that too and it, it does work and also it gets amazon to notice so as soon as your book book starts selling amazon go oh people are buying this one <laughs> let's promote it Oh, right, yeah. Well, I mean, you two have got all the secret information about <laughs> these things. Well, we have some of it. <laughs> how we apply it is another yeah, question. We have got the magic potion. No, no, no. we just oh, know how the potion might work if you put a little drop, a few drops on. <laughs> uh, it's just these algorithms and everything. It's to me, it's double dutch. But I mean, I guess mm. you guys need to know about those things. Yes. Yeah. I mean, as you much know, as you can. No. Well, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of. Um, let's see. You know, it's kind of yeah. It's just guesswork, really. Yeah, because it changes as well. You think you've nailed it, and you think, ah, okay, I did that. That book sold more, so I'll do that to that book. Or I'll do that next week, and it doesn't always work like that. No. <laughs> no. It is, but you, you know, you, you're, you've seen the the changes and the, the. The, the the shifts in taste i suppose as well because um as writing as caroline england your your specialism is psychological thrillers and and domestic noir um and that goes in and out of i mean it's it's been sort of consistent good seller for the last few years but it's had periods where it has been red hot hasn't it mm. yeah i i think it's funny because 
um, I think people are saying, oh, you know, the psychological thriller, you know, oh, no, it's dying a death. No, no, no. But it never quite does. It carries on, carries on, you know. And people like, say, Lisa Jewell, I mean, she's flying, isn't she? It's still, mm. you know, people like that um, secrets and lies and darkness and what goes on behind closed doors. Um, the intrigue. I mean, obviously, they, on the other hand, they still do like all the detective stories, don't they? But um, but yeah, I mean, crime fiction is, I think, isn't it still the best-selling genre? It is. Yeah, yeah. it's only in the UK, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> isn't it funny? We're all drawn, all human beings are drawn to sort of slightly bad things, aren't we? It's, uh, having said that, romance does well as well, doesn't it? So apparently after COVID, everyone wanted to read romance. I, was I think with, with psychological thrillers, though, it's, it's that being able to relate to it. I mean, you might not have that in your own domestic situation, but you you have the similar characters in your life. And it's sort of like, oh, gosh, if that happened to me, but then you think, oh, I've got to keep reading, got to yeah. keep reading. Yeah, yeah. And when you're yeah. when you're writing them, I mean, what is it that how's your what's your methodology in terms of coming up with an idea and then developing it? Yeah, I'm um, I'm an extreme pantser. Uh, so obviously, as everyone will know, that's flying by the seats of, seat of your pants. I wish I could be a plotter. I'd love to. It must be so much easier, mustn't it, to sort of have mm. a, you know, a structure. Um, but I don't. I sort of, um, I think trying to think about how I do this, but it sort of all dissolves. But I think what I do is I think I have a vague, some vague ideas and I mull them and I go to bed at night or I have a bath and I'm mulling and mulling and mulling these sort of potential ideas, which might be an ending or it might be a twist, because obviously my books have lots of twists and reveals. And um, then I think my next step after that is I get a character you know or a couple of characters and I need to get to know those characters so they can fit in with these secrets if you like I think that's the way I do it but I do a lot of mulling that's all I can say <laughs> yeah um, yeah I don't even particularly write notes because it sort of changes and mulls you know as I'm mulling I'm doing a lot of this mulling aren't I but uh, yeah <laughs> I think that's so it's not very uh technical or easy to describe I'd say Robert Dawes said something like that didn't he he said sometimes he's just sitting and thinking and his family think he's not working but he's actually yeah. working harder than when he sat there typing away <laughs> yeah it's true it's I, I have three daughters and sometimes they'll say something to me and I don't answer straight away and they go mom sort of so but it's because I'm thinking about the answer you know so it's a bit like that isn't it yeah mm, absolutely and when you're working you know you've got your characters and you've got your idea um the twists side of it do you have a sort of inbuilt sense of right this needs a twist now I mean do you you know you say you're you're, you're pantsing so then rather than having a a beat sheet or anything like that that people sometimes use and you know here's the halfway points so we're gonna have a big twist there and and is it sort of instinctive yeah it's very instinctive because I don't even know it's sort of often coming myself or or I just, just sort of set off if you like and just to start writing with these vague ideas and as it the sort of it happens as I'm typing if you like and then I might have a break and go for a walk and I'll think oh yeah I could make the character do this or that's a good one um so I have some vague ideas in my mind where I'm headed but others just come as I'm I'm working so yeah 
and you just hope it continues to happen each time. I think, um, but I, I listened to an interview with Mark Billingham and I'm, how many books has he had out? And I even heard him say, every time he finishes a book, he thinks he'll never do it again. That he, he doesn't have the ability. So it's a relief to know it's not just me that maybe most authors do think, wow, how did I do that? And how will I do it again? Yeah, because yeah, you always worry you won't get another idea. It's- yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's a, that's a good sign, isn't it? I mean, if Mark Billingham feels spent at the end of a project, that must, you know, that is probably an indication that he's given it every bit of creative yeah. juice and, 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 yeah. and energy that he can. Yeah. I think with with me, it's not so much the ideas because the ideas come often, but the, the ideas might be if you wrote them down like three words. Well, how do you make that into a whole novel? That's the challenge, isn't it? How do you create this vague idea into you know, 80,000, 100,000 words. I don't know. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Which is, I mean, some listeners will feel frustrated that we, we can't, you know, codify yeah, what it is. They, but, want, they want the formula, don't they? But yes. actually, yeah. you know, it's always encouraging. I mean, you know, we're definitely on the pantsing side of, of life and that does feel, you know, sometimes we feel that you need to wave the flag and justify the pantsing because there are so many books out there that are trying to impose the structure and indeed ai is now working in that in that in that field as well to try and provide the structure yeah i think um i'm probably frustrating for uh, uh, you know to editors because maybe they're looking for for more structure but i'm not very good with rules so anyway i don't like to be told what to do so i I, i've never been on any creative writing courses or anything like that and um and i i think i'd feel stressed if i thought you know, even kids, they're told they've got to put in these wow words and they've got mm. to do this at school. Even at primary school, they're given all these rules. And I used to feel really stressed thinking, oh, my word. You know, how, how do you, you know, have so many wow words in this sentence? And, you know, the beginning. I know we've got to have the beginning, you know, the middle, the end and everything. But um, I think sometimes it can be overly prescriptive for me. But what I would say, if I'm frustrating people listening about who want to write, is... I think the main thing is just do it right. Just write, 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 write. And then once you're getting your ideas down, you can then shape them afterwards, can't you? I think the main thing is to get it down on the page and then sort of maybe worry about the rules afterwards. But yeah. obviously if you can, in, in, you know, comply with rules as you're going along, great. But that's, I think, you're more your plotter than you mm. Yeah, And it's just a different way of working, isn't it? A different mind, so... Yeah. Some people are natural plotters and they would yeah. they would panic if you if you made them pants. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that would be wonderful because they know some people know ev- they have every chapter panned out, don't they? Mm. They just need to then write it, which is marvellous if you can do it. If you can, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. Um, you were a divorce lawyer in your your sort of earlier career. Yes. Um, how much does that play? In, I mean, <laughs> if you're writing domestic noir, you must have come across situations that have influenced your writing definitely yes yeah well when I was training as well I um did quite a lot of criminal law as well so that was another aspect um to it because obviously I don't write police procedurals but I do have criminals in them in in a way uh I don't sort of kill people on the page too much but there'll be hidden crime and secrets and darkness um so I did that and then um when I qualified I actually wanted to do matrimonial law goodness knows why looking back because of course um you know you're what by then early mid-20s 
and I was representing um, older people who were getting divorces. And it was quite an eye opener to what goes on behind closed doors and in mm. marriages. And some things you, you heard about were <laughs> really quite shocking. Um, so obviously I've been able to draw on a lot of these things and just general about human beings. And because obviously as a lawyer, you're, you're hearing their secrets. You're hearing things that they won't tell most people because they have to, because or what, what their partner has done or what they've done. So you, you're getting, um, you know, that inside information to find out really what is going on. That may, maybe because you're a bit like a counselor as well. Because I mean, mm, yeah, very much so, yeah. all sorts of things, don't they? Mm. So obviously, I, I can't draw on anything specifically, but generally, no. it's been really useful. And um, and I am interested in people and what makes people tick, and how, in fact, we're all we're all the same, aren't we? Yet we're all so different as well. You know, yeah. as human beings, we've got all those emotions and worries and concerns and insecurities you know as a basic human being yet we're all different as well so it's fascinating. yeah and if you if you put someone in a situation because I, I think sometimes if you create a character with all their emotions and feelings or whatever then you put them in that situation your job is to as a writer is to what would they do how would they react yeah things like that yeah and of course people would react differently but what I think I really like about a lot of reviews I get they, they a lot of people say the thing about my books is that uh, you feel as though you know that character. You feel as though, you know, there's someone you've come across or by the end of the book, you really do feel you know that person. So I hope I'm good at making them real people as well, even though it's fiction. Obviously, some things happen that is a bit, a bit way off, you know. But, um, but yeah, hopefully. So hopefully, like you said earlier, it's to do with identifying with a person. And even if you wouldn't do something dreadful they might do, you know we're all maybe capable of it mm. in a different sort of situation or yeah yeah I, I think the interesting thing with all relationships is that you know they they probably set off with all the same good intentions and yet what happens is a set of rules establish themselves unwritten sometimes unsaid but in a sense there's this tension that develops, you know, years and years, layers and layers of misunderstanding, miscommunication uh, that, that that lead people to the point where they end up in front of you as a lawyer uh, trying to, to, you know, negotiate some sort of deal in terms yeah. of, you know, splitting up and, and starting afresh. Um, and, and that must be a sort of a very fertile ground. Because a lot of that, is, you know, it's internal. You, you you don't say to your partner what you're really thinking because yes. you know, you know, the impact it's going to have and the potential downwash <laughs> comes your way. Rebecca's looking at you. Now, what are you really way. thinking? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's true. And also I did, um, I did some uh, volunteering as a mediator for the Manchester City Council for a few yeah. years. And that was interesting as well, because, again, that was people in conflict. And that's what makes the book interesting, isn't it? It's the mm. conflict. And that's when the sparks go, isn't it? Any conflict makes a situation. And it was amazing, um, as a mediator, the conflict people did have, you know, over tiny little things or huge things. or and uh, But what's also interesting is how when people actually communicate, you can reconcile that conflict but mostly we don't, do we? we no, because no, you know. we don't listen. I, do, I think it's partly because we want to communicate our own thoughts and reactions to the conflict, but we don't listen 
enough or we listen with a an idea of or a sort of a pre- preconceived idea of what the meaning is of what the other person is saying without stepping back and just letting the other person speak and well, I think that's the other thing about writing, isn't it? It's viewpoint. Um, so I think I quite like some, some, I do, each book is slightly different. Sometimes it's from one viewpoint. I mean, my husband's lies in Beneath the Skin were from multiple viewpoints. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it, how viewpoint, we all think truth is truth, don't we? But in fact, it's our truth often. And our truth might not be the same as their truth. So again, that that's interesting, isn't it? Viewpoint, how... Uh, you know, we're all have these opinions about things and we think we're right, but we might not be. <laughs> well, that's an interesting phrase you use because, our, you know, our truth, it it is becoming part of the, the sort of lexicon, really, you know, in public discourse is that people have an entitlement to their own truth. It's, you know, I, I mention them quite frequently on the uh, on the podcast, but defenders of Harry and Meghan who, you know, when they had a go at the royal family, were saying, well, they're just ex- expressing their truth and they're entitled to it. And yet, you know, the reaction over here, quite understandably, you know, was 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 quite negative to their truth. Um, but it is an interesting thing that there is a, a generation coming through who feel they're entitled to express the truth, whereas we, perhaps as older people from the culture that we've come from... Speak for yourself. Well, no, I think... <laughs> yes. Well, no, I mean, you know, okay, so, so, so let's just say our generation... We're not encouraged to express our truth. You know, as, as young um, professionals in workplaces, we, you know, you were you were expected to just sort of put up with whatever it was and, and get on with it. Yeah. Uh, and that is not the case now. It is interesting, but compare that, I suppose, with uh, the younger generation counselling people, on the other hand, who then aren't their, their truth is sort of stifled. Yes. Um, I mean, I do understand cancelling mean, in some situations. Yes, you you know, but I suppose we were brought up with the, you're entitled to the debate at least. Mm. You know, debate people, is healthy. Yeah. And, um, but but that seems to contrast, doesn't it, with this, this thing of, well, we're allowed to say our truth, even if it isn't the truth. Mm. So yes, exactly. That I mean, that is the, it's you, the contradiction. You, 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 yeah. yeah, the contradiction and the dichotomy is that yeah, you know, you can have your truth as long as it's the right truth. Uh, if, you know, you can express it publicly <laughs> if, as long as your orthodoxy is is you know in in line with the, the current public opinion, and and uh, otherwise you get cancelled. So uh, yeah, it is a really difficult commercial on the Hobcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, these are things that we always talk about because you know we feel very strongly, for instance, that rewriting authors um, that you know are, are now deceased, writing in a period of, of our history where things were, were different, um, shouldn't get rewritten uh, to yeah. you know to, to modern standards. You know, it's it's not it's not fair. They're not there to defend themselves. Um, you know, it may be uncomfortable, but surely we're all resilient enough to be able to read that and recognise it for what it was in the 1930s. It is also educational because how can you make a judgment on a behaviour, a way to behave, if you don't know the way to behave that you want to judge on? So if someone's writing a book in the 20s that's quite misogynist, you need to know that that was an opinion that existed in the 1920s to understand the period of history and to also behave better now. So To learn from it, yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah it's so <laughs> it's a mindful let's not let's not dwell on though, that. isn't it yeah we could talk about that forever it's really interesting we could we could we should do it over a drink in harrogate next year yeah um, definitely 
Now you write as C.E. Rose as well. So, yes. and but this is a different um, style of books and a different genre, uh, more gothic. Tell, tell us yeah. about that. It, it is. Um, it is slightly different, but I feel as though one authors have a way of writing. Well, most authors, and I'm sure it's still very much a Caroline England type of the way I write it just really has the hint of the gothic really so it's got that slight spookiness I mean it's um you know it's only a hint but you know and they're all set in um well I think one could say each setting is a character in itself so for example um the first one the house of hidden secrets uh was in a sprawling um farmhouse an old sprawling farmhouse in um goose tree in Cheshire Oh, and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and then the next one, uh, I think that was um, the house on the water's edge was in um, an old thatched cottage on the Norfolk Broads. Then the next one, the shadows of Rutherford House was in an ancient decaying pile in Yorkshire. And then uh, the last one was in, um, a, you know, one of those townhouses in Belgravia, the very expensive ones. Yes. So I think that the setting itself and the secrets that can are within that setting become almost a character. So I think that's what gives it the gothic hint. But it's still, uh, I think there's still psychological thrillers in terms of it's about secrets and what's going on behind the scenes and things aren't always what they appear to be and, you know, the sense of, mystery and darkness etc yeah no i mean they're, they're fabulous i mean the attic at wilton place being like the, the most recent one um yes yeah and you know i i i i used to uh when i was working in london uh, i used to walk through holland park area quite a lot on the way to work um because you know it's cheek by jowl with shepherd's bush which um you know was where the bbc were and you know, it's you look at those big places, uh, or in Notting Hill Gate, or somewhere like that, and you just wonder what's going on. You know, even an upstairs, downstairs kind of situation yeah, going on. They well. do have that fascination, don't they? Because that's maybe because they've got such thick walls, don't they? <laughs> yeah, no, you, absolutely. You know, it is. Um, I think the buildings are—they're um, the facade, aren't they? You know, and so I, I think there's definite. I mean, I'm intrigued, and um, you know what goes on in the building when you see something really interesting. Um, so I think that that's something that does appeal to readers, <clears throat> even though domestic noir again, uh, my Caroline England books, it's it, it is a very householdy thing, isn't it, or a family thing. So it still has that sort of wrapping, that container in the stories um, about what goes within. Yeah, it's really interesting. But our homes are. We all need a home, don't we? Sort of that's that's our structure in life. And home. it's where you feel safe. But what happens when you don't? Oh, that's a good tagline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. But you should feel exactly. safe. Exactly. I mean, you live in a part of Manchester which has all that sort of mystique as well, because Didsbury, you know, leafy Didsbury, some of those big Victorian villas. They're extraordinary, and yeah, that you get that feel too. You know, in the way it's sort of. Not the North's Belgravia, but it, it's, some some aspects are. Yeah, there's there's lots of lovely buildings around here. But in fact, um, in the stranger beside me, I go a little bit away into Wally Range. I don't know if you. Oh know yeah, yeah, I know Wally Range. Yeah, and Wally Range, it was built um, by I think it was called Samuel Brooks or something, and it was built um, as a posh estate in the middle of, and it was like this oasis, and it was all you know, none of the ruffians could go inside. So no, Burnage is next door, isn't it? 
<laughs> or sides not far away, yeah. Yeah, it's true. But but Wally Range itself, it was all these gorgeous buildings were built and they're, they're, they're huge. They're still there. A lot of them have been turned into bedsits and flats and stuff. And what, I don't think a lot of them are whole, but they're gorgeous, gorgeous old buildings. But then that area sort of just went downhill, if you like, and um, it becomes became a red light area for a long time but now it's back on the up again but again I've set um the main sort of story in one of those old houses and again it's not a CE Rose book but it is there are secrets that go on in that house and um so um it's again I'm fascinated by the whole thing so let's talk let's talk Manchester and its literary sort of impact I I mean you know everyone talks about the music scene and you know and it has been disproportionately for the size of the place it is in, impactful i mean yeah. you know it it dwarfs almost anywhere else in in the country let's be honest in terms of what it's produced and um <laughs> it really does saying all but, the right things <laughs> right well it's true i mean yeah. i feel very proud you know, to, to be an adopted can you name a, you know, Sorry? How many bands from Stafford can you name? Well, not many, but, um, you know, but, <laughs> but you know, look, I mean, you're from Sheffield originally, so you've got plenty to be proud of from that point of view, uh, plenty of Sheffield bands and, and Manchester equally. And then Liverpool sort of has had its heyday uh, the and, the, and struggles a little bit now. But in terms of its literary impact, you can, you know, there are some great authors who've lived there, but it doesn't feel to me, and maybe I'm wrong in this, as a literary scene in Manchester. Is that fair? I think you're right. I think there's um, quite a good poetry scene. I think there are lots of, um, you know, these open mic things and that type of thing. But I know what you mean. And also, obviously, um, Harper North has come here, hasn't it? And there might be a a Hachette office now somewhere in Manchester. But you're right, it still feels, I feel everything is still very London-centric when it comes to publishing. And um, it still feels it's all happening down there, even though they've tried it. And of course, there's um, Media City and everything up here. So you, you feel it was. Um, but but yeah, I don't feel as. But more more TV programmes seem to be set in Manchester now, don't they? You know, dramas. They're sort of mm. moving around a bit. They're going to maybe Birmingham or Nottingham or, you know, quite a lot of Manchester. But yeah, it doesn't, I agree with you, it feels more musical. And that's the reason when it was always going to be Manchester for me, because it was just such a great scene, you know, I just really wanted to come over. And uh, it was the place to be. And um, and of course, I adopted it as my own. It's funny, isn't it? You grow up and you suddenly realise you've lived here a lot longer than you did in your childhood home. Ah. Yeah. yeah, so did you sort of get over for the period, you know, factory records and, and Hacienda and all that sort yeah. of period? Yeah, all that. Yeah, it was really exciting. The Smiths. So yeah, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. There was so much going on. So, um, but yeah, as you say, from a writing point of view, it doesn't feel. Do you think there's anywhere in the UK other than London that feels literary? Oxford. Yeah. Well, Cambridge. Oh yeah, yeah. That, yeah that's but not, thing, but... I mean, in terms of publishing companies, Oxford and Cambridge, and yeah, they still have a. They have a. Yeah. Uh, there's the Golden Triangle in that sense, mm, but yeah. I think. That... Where do the writers live? Suffolk. Don't they? A lot of them live in <laughs> well, they, yeah, a fair few. I mean, I think that in terms of that scene, I think Newcastle really works hard at it. Oh, no, I think you're right about Newcastle. A lot seems to happen there, doesn't it? Yeah. There's yeah. North and Newcastle Noir and so on. Yeah. Right. I think they've you know they've got seven stories there. Um, for you know in terms of children's fiction as well. So they've really really latched onto that. And I think that you know if we're talking about England, I think that's. You know, that's the sort of high point outside of London. But then 
you know, you can't look past Glasgow and Edinburgh for their impact in terms of writing. Um, you know, so many stellar names come from those cities. Yeah. Especially in our field of, of yeah. crime fiction. Yeah. Yeah. It's the dark nights. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. So it's, I mean, it's really time for, um, for, for, for Manchester. I think, you know, the university should, should play their part in this and in a way that, you know, you've got, I mean, Manchester has the biggest student population outside mm. of London in the country and it just doesn't seem to be sort of harnessing that. Although it you... does have the MMU creative writing course, doesn't it? Yeah. So you think that would, I think maybe from that point, so maybe in time. Yeah. We'll all filter out in time. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I shall spearhead it. I did a few times um, sort of email the Manchester Literary Festival going, oh, hello, hello. I'm a, I'm a, no, I'm a nobody, but I'm a local writer. You know? And in the end, they sort of got back to me and said, stop emailing us. Oh, no. Did they and really? Then, yeah, at one it, point, because I think they just didn't, they weren't, it, it's all the big names and it's a shame. Yes, they do. They yeah. bring on the, the sort of middle to lower end of the authors. And one day we might, you know, progress higher sort of thing but well maybe we need to do something about that you do a pretty woman thing and you walk in and you say Harrogate ha (laughs) (laughs) yeah I know but but in fact there's a local festival which I did this summer which is the Didsbury Arts Festival and they welcomed me with open arms so that was nice yeah no that's great And, and you know um in terms of when you're writing, I mean, do it at home because I've I've used Manchester Central Library as a place which really gives me a sense of I'm doing you know God's work when I'm writing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love it there; it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, some some aspects of it, anyway. It's all been revamped, and it you know it's, it's just amazing. Um, but my dream actually is to take my laptop and sit in the little window seat where Marx and Engels used to sit at Cheatham's Library. Um, Ooh, writing yeah. the you know the, working on the communist manifesto so you know that would be you know sort of place but I think Manchester's got so many little enclaves mm-hmm. where you can feel that that creative energy yeah it does it has lots of uh little libraries and other you know the Rylands libraries obviously oh yeah John Rylands um, yeah what's that one the Portico library have you ever been in there no I haven't no oh it's lovely it's like um you just go up these little steps and it's all sort of dusty it has dusty old tomes it has that very old feel about it but some people have book launches there it's a beautiful place to go in um but yeah I agree with you I'd like to be sort of quite arty and like write somewhere but I don't I do it all here where we're talking <laughs> it's, it's, the magic all happens in this room because um, I'm quite a practical person, I'm just, uh, you know, I think I'd be too busy if I went to any of these places looking around and, you know, sort of seeing what other people are up to rather than getting on with the typing. Yeah, because people watching would be the big distraction, yes. wouldn't it? Yeah. But then yeah. you might be thinking, oh, oh, there's someone I can put in my, oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But uh, yeah, I think, um, but the process of writing, it does involve just getting knuckling down and just bashing it out isn't it sort of thing and um and I think if you can do that in Manchester Central Library you know with I just whereas here I've got no distractions at all so I quite admire people who sit in cafes and you know, <laughs> very romantic. I think that's a dream I isn't it yeah, yeah I'd like I, if I could romantic. be an artist in residence at, at a cafe that would be my you know oh, that, lovely. That, that would be my thing um but it's in I mean in terms of you say getting down and doing it I mean how disciplined are you in terms of getting the words down yeah, I think it's, um, as you know, the whole writing process isn't just about your first draft, if you like. But when I am on that first draft, I just get get on with it and just sit down every day and just, you know, 
bash it out sort of thing. And um, unless there's something better to do, I just sit here and I just sort of do it. Um, but then, of course, it's not as simple as that, is it? Because then it uh, you have to rewrite, you have to redraft. And if it goes to an editor, they have their views on it. So it's all a bit different then, isn't it? It's all a bit more bitty because, you know, um, but I do have the work ethic, you know, I sort of, um, you know, just get on with it, really. Uh, so, yeah. And then, of course, the social media and all that. That's so time consuming, isn't it? Mm. Does it work? Does anyone know? I don't think anyone does know. I honestly don't. No. No, we, just, we just keep doing it because we think if we don't, then it right. might not work at all. Same here. Yeah. It's like all last, you know, Thursday was publication day and I literally spent every day moment of the day till I went to a friend's house for dinner um just retweeting thanking people and it was the whole day I was exhausted by the end of the day and that's all I'd done and I was thinking is this making any difference at all but you don't do it so (laughs) (laughs) well who knows I mean that that is that is the key question anyway here's the here's the toughest one oh oh it's that time yeah 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 here we go I'm nervous I'm nervous Probably with justification. Stop it. <laughs> me. I know. I'm sorry. This is a highlight of your life and things like that. And it's like, no, it really isn't. The, the toughest question in British broadcasting, it is, of course, Rebecca's random question. Okay. If you were a tomato, what dish would you like to be served as? Oh, oh, that's that's a good one. I think I would like it to be chopped up into quite small pieces, along with some red onion chopped up into small pieces as well, and add a bit of, you know, herbs and spices and olive oil and be put on some, um, you know, what's that bread called for bruschetta? Oh, yeah. What was, I can't remember what it's called, because I always say the wrong thing and I make it sound like a... a Ciabatta or something. Yeah, like ciabatta. Let's say the ciabatta. I was thinking the one beginning with an F. Yeah, we saw some in the bakery yesterday. We did? And it sounds like a swear word. Yeah. I don't say it. (laughs) Yeah, you said it. (laughs) Yeah, so I think I'll I'll become like some bruschetta if I could, please. And, of course, I'd need to then go to Italy to be eaten you know, have the genuine thing, sunshine and a glass of wine and yeah can or i nominate what type of tomato, tomato I'd, I'd be what well, type of tomato yeah you'd be a beef tomato <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that um no i'd like to be a san marzano um, tomato the posh ones yeah well they are the best tomatoes ever yeah because they, they, they grow on the slopes of vesuvius but does oh, that mean lovely. you'll be eaten on yeah. toast for my breakfast? Probably. <laughs> oh, yeah. lovely. You can't go wrong with some Marzano. I have. I think it's a bit of a weird breakfast. I don't know how many people have this for breakfast, but I have tinned tomatoes on breakfast every day. What What? What? you put on toast is this? Or... Yeah. yeah. Tinned tomatoes on toast with a bit of cheese on top and barbecue sauce every single day. Oh, well, do you know, funnily enough, I've not had that for years, but my mum used to make that for us. Not, not with the, just with, on toast, tin mm. tomatoes on toast. And, I, I, you know, and it's lovely to hear, but obviously the add-ons sound very intriguing <laughs> as well. So this is where yeah. the tomato it question comes from. The type that he wants to be, the posh tomatoes in a tin. Oh, very yeah. good. Yeah. So I think you're, you've got a bit of a tomato thing going on in your family. 
I love tomatoes. I really yeah. do. I love all sorts but of tomatoes. But you have a middle son who won't touch them. I know, because when I was pregnant with him, I ate loads of tomatoes and he can't stand the sight of them and he can't bear them to be even near his food. Isn't that funny? Maybe one day, though. Maybe the tomato thing will come back full circle. But, I yeah. hope so. I I hope hope so. And I'd like to go around yeah. to his house and see him eating a tomato and I go, ha! <laughs> He's probably <laughs> secretly like doing it, isn't he? He's probably just not telling you. <laughs> a secret tomato eater. Yeah. <laughs> No, oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Caroline, um, where can people find you online? Uh, right. Well, it's the uh, usual social media. So, I mean, I think basically if you do go- a Google search of Caroline England author, I come up on um, Twitter at Kaz England and Instagram. That's as at Kaz England with a one because someone else bagged the one without <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and, so you have um, to be one. Yeah. <laughs> And on Facebook and on TikTok. I'm trying to do TikTok. No idea what I'm doing, but I'm trying. And um, where else is there? Obviously, Facebook. Uh, oh, no, X is Twitter, isn't it? Uh, threads. Are you yeah, on Threads? threads. I'm on Threads. I'm on, yes, I'm on, yeah, X, Twitter, whatever it's called these days. <laughs> I'm confused. But, uh, yeah, and obviously, uh, you find my books on Amazon and um, in bookstores. The, a few Waterstones has it at the moment, which is really exciting. Uh, yeah. So that's me. If you just put a, there's another Caroline England who's um, a, a Liverpudlian songwriter, and I think she must be a bit miffed with me because I think I like, <laughs> elbowed her out of the way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a nightmare, isn't it? When it, especially if it's someone creative as well. I mean, if it was just you know someone working in accountancy, it wouldn't be so much a problem. But that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that reminds me, we once had a telephone number that was one digit different from a Chinese takeaway. Oh, so we'd we'd often get calls for orders, and we're like, "No, it's not the Chinese takeaway." Yeah, that could be a story though, because you could sort of like pretend to be it and take the money, and yeah. Oh yeah, Yeah. I didn't think of that. Yeah, Yeah, give me credit card details. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Well, look, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, lovely to see you both, and see you soon again. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I'm hungry now. Yeah, I bet you are. After that. Random well, we just answer. had lunch when before we recorded this podcast. Yeah, I know, you? but I want to eat her random answer. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Weird thing to say, but yes, you're right. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, let's think things Hobeck for a bit. Yes, let's. So we have, as always, we say this every week. We never say, oh, gosh, we've got such a quiet week next week. Mm, you, you're having a particularly busy month at the moment. I am, because I've... I've um, I've got some uh, interesting freelance projects at the moment. And one which, the thing about me, whenever I copy edit a book, I get really passionate about it, don't I? Yes. And so this one, is the title of the book is Why Can't I See My GP? And it is brilliant. I actually think that the Radio 4 should be talking about this book because they, they're always talking about the NHS and issues with the NHS. Mm. And in fact, just last week, it was in the news that um, waiting lists, that there's more people waiting on treatment now than ever before. Seven and a half million people waiting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, look, everyone listening to this will have be either one of those people yes. or will know someone very close to them who is on that waiting list. Um, I know we have uh, members of the family in that in that category. It's, yeah, I mean, it's broken. It's broken. So the, and, and I think they also need to send this book to Stephen Barclay. You do? Yes. Is that the name of the guy? Yeah, 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 just the health secretary. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, often mistaken with Stephen Bartlett, who is from Dragon's Den. I just thought, oh, no, I've said the dragon man, haven't I? (laughs) No, no, you're right. Steve Barkley is, is, well, he's a particularly um, 
uh, well, let's put it this way: he's he knows what he knows, and um, he, you know he's not easily persuaded. Well, he, he will if he reads this book. <laughs> I think you'd be surprised. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's I mean, it's a big project for you. I'm um, narrating again, and uh, I'm doing a Hobart book at the moment. You which are. Is Chasing the Dragon for Mark Whiteman, which is due out on September the 12th. Uh, and so I am busy trying to get the audiobook to coincide with the launch date. Um, loving doing it. Yes. Um, I did the first one, and being back in the world of Max Betancourt and Singapore in the 1940s gets me a chance to do most of my received pronunciation accents and all that sort of thing. Hey, very nice, yes. Yes, everyone, you know, there's, you know everybody but Betancourt, or, <laughs> unless they're a coolie or a, a, you know, a rickshaw puller or something like that. Um, everyone's sort of colonial and, mm. yeah, yes, uh, that kind of thing. Um, it's been fun to do, you, you know. It's not a big, I mean, you keep calling me posh. I suppose it isn't a big leap for me to go. Oh, it's yes. not a big leap, no. No, it isn't really. It's a big leap for me. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because you think about when we grew up watching TV, everyone had RP accents. I mean, you know, no matter what the the program was, everyone, there wasn't, you, you didn't, British, you know, newsreaders had RP accents. Uh, they were picked to do that. Children's Just, TV. Yeah. They all did. Well, I mean, to, 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 to a greater or lesser degree, I mean, there weren't, that many people being mega posh but you, if you're watching children's tv in blue peter um leslie judd proper rp accent but then <laughs> she was judd. a sort of yeah leslie judd but then you got you had, you had john noakes bringing a, a rare touch of yorkshire yeah, but, warmth but he was seen as a sort of you know the yokel wasn't he he was actually seen like that well it, yeah it was a kind of character he had to play you know the action man who uh you know, it was a bit loved his dog. Yeah, and he was a little bit all oh, whippets and you know all that sort of thing, and brought that sort of taste of of Yorkshire. Um, he actually hated playing that role. He was an actor first and foremost. Indeed, Peter Purvis is an actor, but he was better known for presenting Blue Peter. And um, basically, he got forced to do all the dangerous stuff. I don't, I don't know if you remember the the point where he was climbing Nelson's column. Yes, I do. I remember it very well. I mean, yeah. what an extraordinary... I mean, there was no harness. <laughs> he had nothing nothing to protect him. He climbs up Nelson's column on a bunch of rickety ladders. And then when you get to the top, you had to go over an overhang to get onto a, wo- a small wooden platform and then chip away at the pigeon droppings on Nelson. Again, and then... You know, there was a little bosun's cradle that swung over the side and he had to sort of have a go at some of the bird droppings on the column itself without a harness. It's just extraordinary the the risks that people took for our entertainment in the 1970s. Well, I actually remember as a child thinking I'd like to be a Blue Peter presenter, but thinking I couldn't do all the, the adventure stuff. Well, you know how they used to... I love digressing like this. Um, when they did screen tests for Blue Peter... yeah. One of the tests was whether you could carry on presenting and talking while on a trampoline. Oh, I could do that. So you had to do all the sort of things. So, yeah, I've seen, I mean, for instance, Anthea Turner's one where she's doing all the bouncing up and down and, and keeping talking. It's harder than you think because but, your breath is being bounced out of your lungs. I've got as you an land. idea. Let's do next week's podcast on trampolines. Well, we'll go to Flip Out or somewhere like yeah. that and, and do it there. That would be such fun. All right. Well, there's a challenge. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be doing next week's podcast uh, on a, at a trampoline place, <laughs> whatever they call them, Emporium. Um, before we do that, 
Who yes. will we be introducing as our guest next week? Oh, so next week we're talking... Oh, we're actually... We're travelling again. We're not really travelling. We're not travelling, but the podcast is. We're talking to someone in Romania. Wow. Tony Mott. Tony Mott. Wow, whereabouts in... No, we'll Braz, find out. Brazov. Brazov? Braskov. Bras, bras, we'll leave, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> you can figure out how to say where she is later. <laughs> next week. Oh, I've got a week to work it out. Then. You've got a week to work, to work it out. And also we've got to uh, find somewhere that's prepared to let us record a podcast with headphones on while bouncing on a trampoline. We could always go to Decathlon or something and try one out there. What's Decathlon? It's a shop. Oh. They always have trampolines outside. Well, let's just do it there then. Yeah, because otherwise, you know, it's going to be very noisy, reflective sound. I mean, you know, that's because they have a... Or ice skating. No, 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 no. That, that I draw the line at. I just I have a mortal fear of ice skating. Besides which, every time I've tried to go, they've never had boots that could get around my calves. Oh, right, okay. Because I take the size 13 anyway, yeah. feet, and, and then my calves. Uh, well, let's put it this way. Um, think Henry VIII, and then you've got sort of the dimensions of my legs. <laughs> And, uh, you know, two two massive ham hocks of legs. And they just don't go round. You know, I just could not get them on. Yeah, but your legs have changed. Yeah, I've been trying to uh, <laughs> to improve my fitness and whatever, and lose weight and all that. Yeah, I suppose they have changed a bit. But I'm still not prepared to take the risk. Mainly because someone told me the first time I went skating when I was a kid was whatever you do, if you go over, keep your fingers in yeah. the fist. Otherwise, someone's going to slice them off with a blade. It. Yes. Right. Well, thanks for that. I mean, really not in a rush to become, you know, a one-handed pianist thanks to skating. So well, It's going to ruin your career as a two-handed pianist. Yeah. I mean, you know, I still <laughs> enjoy playing the guitar occasionally and, you know, I want it to be kept that way. Okay. So it's just too kinetic Let's just me. stick to trampolining then. Fine. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be speaking to Tony Mott next week. So thank you so much for joining us here on the Hopcast Book Show. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. I'm sorry the stories were kind of negative, but there you go. Um we made up for it for the, the oh, banter. Our cheery banter about Leslie Judd. Uh, it doesn't get any better oh, than that. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> she was a particularly 70s icon. She had, she had that look, didn't she? The sort of A-line skirt and the boots. She was wearing Bieber clothing. Yeah, she was trendy, actually. Oh, she, she was she, very trendy. Well, she was sort of Laura Ashley before Laura Ashley existed. Oh, God, no. Laura Ashley's not trendy. No, no, but the sort of the flowing dresses and, I mean, she just, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, God, we really got stuck in there. We're going to talk about Jan Leeming next or something like oh, that. Oh, God, Jan Leeming. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> she was funny because um, friends of mine in the newsroom used to say that she would walk in and she would never be seen without a fur. Really? Absolutely. She always dressed as if she was going out to, you know, the Royal Variety performance. I'd love like. to live like that, to just dress up every time i go to the shops it's because news readers at that time did no journalism they were just there to read the news so richard baker uh kenneth kendall jan leeming uh even maurice stewart they were just there because of their pronunciation their coolness under pressure they didn't do any of the journalism themselves they were just performers i actually didn't know they did do journalism themselves well, no no but nowadays no they're... that's why i didn't know that i thought they were just news readers no 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 i mean they weren't that was strictly it. they were employed for their news reading skills and nothing else they yeah didn't... but now i didn't now... know oh no, no yeah, they, they rewrite the headlines and really yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, ne- well, I never knew that some more than others i'd like to be a weatherman well there's a couple of things getting in the way of that first your knowledge of the weather 
and B, being, well, I mean, you know, I'm not anti you changing. When you said a couple of things getting in the way. (laughs) (laughs) A weather person. Yes, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Well, I had a a colleague whose dream it was to do that and is one now. He is one of the major names on the BBC doing it. Nick Miller. But the problem is, I would like it to be like it was in the 70s when you had the little stickers that you yeah, actually you stuck. Want the, the magnetic board. <laughs> yeah, there was something charming about that, wasn't there? Anyway, look, we've digressed yet again. Let's get to the end of this podcast, shall we? Thanks for joining us this week on the Hopcast Book Show. Please take a look at our websites, www.hobeck.net for things Hobeck, www.archpub.net. That's it. For things Archpub. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed all our blather. Um, which we hope you, you did, and you'll join us again next week after what should be a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.